Podcasting, The Final Frontier. This is the Hammer Podcast. It's 30-minute mission to rehash geeky topics, to seek out new bastions of nerdiness, to timidly go where the more talented have gone before. Greetings and welcome to the Hammer Podcast, the official podcast of thehammerstrikes.com. I'm your host, Gene Hendricks, and before we get to today's topic, we have some listener feedback and some business to discuss. So why don't we just get right into it with some listener feedback. Uh, we got two emails today. The first one comes from Chris Franklin, and it's just titled, Fall Guy. And he writes, Hi, Gene. Well, that was a fun blast from the past. I watched the Fall Guy regularly on its first run, but I really haven't given it much thought in years, mostly due to its absence in reruns. I had the diecast miniature of the pickup truck. I think it was made by Ertl? Either way, I still have it, somewhere around here. And like you and Andy, I still remember the theme song lyrics. I seem to recall Major's performing, in quotes, lip-syncing, the theme on Solid Gold back around the time the show hit as well. It's a shame Majors, a fellow native Kentuckian, seems to have more or less retired. The last thing I remember seeing him in was the first live-action Ben 10 movie on Cartoon Network, where he played Grandpa Max, if that doesn't make you feel old. Anyway, great show. Always a pleasure to hear more from you and Andy, Chris. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Yeah, that was a, a fun episode to record. Andy and I, I originally proposed the idea to him back in January of 2015, and just various things got in the way and scheduling and etc. and, you know, the five-hour time difference. And it just took until the end of 2015 in order for us to record it, and it took me a few more months to get it out into the ether to where everyone could enjoy it. But I had a good time, and I definitely have to finagle Andy on again if I can, you know, get him away from uh, being the semi-regular permanent co-host over on Views from the Longbox. Anyway, our second email comes from my good friend and fraternity brother, Mr. Kurt Over, and its subject is Hammer Podcast Episode 18. Ah, Excalibur. Still the gold standard of King Arthur movies after 30-plus years. The 1950s movies have their moments, but don't match up to how Borman chooses to portray the combat, betrayal, and length of the story. The more recent forays, First Night and King Arthur, with Clive Owen, etc., won't be mentioned beyond this sentence since they fall far short in one or more cinematic or story areas, in addition to being horribly ludicrous at points as well. The overall material of The Matter of Britain is so broad and varied that one would think it could be mined more often. The Robin Hood folklore is of a comparable age and not as varied, but seems to be a more popular target. Perhaps the Errol Flynn film has something to do with it, but there appears to be an Arthurian film in the works for early 2017 release. But given the details listed in the Wikipedia entry for it, I have few expectations for it. But in any case, due to Excalibur, we also have the Williamson standard set for portraying Merlin, at least as an adult. Plus, Nigel Terry showing great range from clueless teen to ill and prematurely aged man as Arthur himself. And a great group of character actors who are interesting to spot in other films. Looking forward to the next episode, Kurt. P.S. Still brings tears to my eyes when I see the scene of the reinvigorated Arthur and his knights 
riding through the blooming orchard while O Fortuna plays, part of what cinema is all about. Well, I couldn't agree more, and I know Luke Giaconetti agrees with you as well, Kurt. And if you want more information on my thoughts on the Errol Flynn Robin Hood, you can head on over to thehammerstrikes.com, where I wrote an article about it, or go to the Film and Water Podcasts at fireandwaterpodcast.com and find the episode I did with Rob Kelly on that movie, which was also fun to record. Okay, listener feedback is now out of the way. Now we must discuss business, and that would be in regard to this particular episode, or, I should say, episodes. You see, as part of the generational stories idea that I have going all over this year's episodes, I had the thought, if the thing has generations in the title, maybe I should cover it. Well, if I'm going to cover Superman, Batman, Generations, I gotta have on Michael Bailey. One, he's a Superman and a Batman guy, and two, he's someone that I've always wanted to podcast with. Now, yes, I know, dear listener, I have on Comics Monthly Monday, but hear me out. Like with Andy and with Luke, Mike is a podcaster I've not actually been on a show with one-on-one, and it's something I wanted to do, and the fact that we're so close in age, so close uh, from our points of origin, he from Eastern PA, me from South Jersey, I wanted to get his take on some things. Now, when you get somebody like Mike and somebody like me together to talk about a four-issue series... That tends to run into the hours of recording time. Now, I am not going to subject you to that this time. What I'm going to do is, like I said, is four issues. This episode, we will tackle the first two. Now, we didn't plan this when we were recording, so I'm going to fade out at the end, give you a little outro tag, and then we'll pick it up at issue number three next episode, which, because... I plan this for the March episode. You will get in a few weeks. Yes, that is right, dear listener. You will get not one, but two episodes of the Hammer Podcast this month. Now, should you want to keep it this going, I must point out that I do have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash thehammerstrikes. And one of the rewards, should I get to a certain level, is you will get two podcast episodes per month. So... If you like what I do here, and you want to hear more of it, and you like what I do on the blog, and apparently people do because I keep getting good reviews on that, please head on over to Patreon.com and maybe throw in a buck or two. You know, I I would greatly appreciate it. It would help me to expand what I want to do. But that's enough of me begging you for money. We will now take a quick promotional break and be right back with the first part of this very special two-part episode. Superman, Captain Marvel, Batman. It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2, Sergeant Rock, the Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tamara, Jonah Hex, Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing, Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that 
is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Area. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Coming January only at twotruefreaks.com. Welcome back. And as I'm continuing my exploration of generational stories in media, we'll say, we're going to go to one that actually has the name Generations in the title, and that would be Batman, or Superman and Batman Generations. The movie has got me confused. (laughs) It should always be Superman and Batman, but the movie is Batman v Superman. This is a John Byrne series done in 1999, four issues, just amazing stuff. And now, if I'm going to be talking Superman and Batman, then I'm going to have to have some someone on because I'll just babble completely irrationally. So, who better than someone who is known as a fan of both these characters, and a man, as we record this, who is about to celebrate his 10th birthday, Mr. Michael Bailey. How are you, sir? I'm doing okay. Yeah, um, you only turned 10 twice. So. <laughs> well, I... You're not going to be 10 years old. You're just celebrating your 10th birthday. Yeah, it's funny, though, because uh, I I was talking with somebody about this. Because when you're a leap year baby, when you're a leap baby, one, you have to actually explain what a leap year is. (laughs) It's not actually, it's a leap year, but more specifically, it's a leap day. And there's something very specific with that. Because in a normal cycle, in like, you know, 2005, February 5th was on a Wednesday. So in 2006, it's going to be on a Thursday. But because of the 29th, it leaps a day, Mm. which is where that term comes from. But when you are a leap baby, people, it's really weird. People don't know what questions to ask. It's like, so do you celebrate your birthday? It's like, well, obviously I age. (laughs) I'm physically, I don't know if I'd be physically 40 at this point, but... uh, (laughs) There could be parts of me that are physically like 80, so I, I'm not really sure. But um, but no, the, the funny thing is, is that that when I really got into Superman, I found out that, that that it was his birthday too. So I figured it was fate. It was just it was just total fate. But uh, I'm not gonna hit 40 twice. No. Uh, I, I, I did, well, if I do, then you know maybe the maybe I found a Lazarus pit somewhere. Or you're the ultra humanite. Or the <laughs> nice. <laughs> I gotta work the story in somehow. Uh, but no, but thank you for having me on. I uh, I love this series. I've loved this series since it first came out, and it continues to be one of my favorite things that John Byrne ever did. Yeah, I mean it's, and we'll we'll get into the specifics later. But this is one of those where I I was in college at the time, and I went to a regular comic book store. Uh, which was actually fairly close to the campus. So it was just a couple blocks walk away from you know, where classes were and everything. And when I was living in my fraternity house, it was actually even closer. And I just, I was in there the one day, flipping through, I saw saw this on the shelf. Superman and Batman, Generations, an Imaginary Tale, 1939-1949. I'm like, what? By John Byrne? Gimme! <laughs> because... 
as most people know, John Byrne, that era was my introduction to the DC universe. Uh, I got into Superman after Byrne was off the book, but I immediately went back and found more stuff because my, my first Superman comic was the 1989 Action Comics Annual. Uh, Gladiator Superman on the cover. <laughs> yes. Or <laughs> Exile, one of my favorite stories yes. ever. Uh, so, Byrne was gone by then because this was the whole aftermath of his last storyline. And I just, this was so great. I mean, look at all this. You know, Superman's being impersonated, Clark Kent's being impersonated by something on Earth. What's going on here? And the the whole history of Krypton. So I went back and found Man of Steel, read that, and found as many issues as I could working through there. And I've always loved Burns' art on X-Men, on Fantastic Four, on whatever he was working on, and now on his Star Trek stuff. I mean, one of the more recent series that I have is his miniseries of Leonard McCoy, Frontier Doctor. Which is really, really good. It explains that why. sounds interesting. At least, yeah. I, I mean, I'm it's kind of fascinated by that. It's between the end of the original series and Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Oh, so this explains how he got a beard and a medallion. Exactly, and okay, it, very he, cool. He's basically in a shuttlecraft going between planets and treating people or aliens or whoever as they need it, and he's running into, oh, well, Scotty's on this planet doing something, and they have a little adventure in this issue. It's only four issues, but it's it's really worth it if you can find it. I think they have it traded now, but I'm not I sure. I might pick that up, because I, I must admit, I, I, I haven't really read a lot of recent Burn stuff, uh, though everyone tells me that his Star Trek stuff is, is, is a lot of fun. Uh, but Burn, I, I blame, well, I hold him, res- no, that's not right either. <laughs> um... Everything you ever hear me do podcasting-wise, or anything I do with comics, Byrne is indirectly responsible for, because it was Superman number 8 and Action Comics number 591 that got me to start buying the Superman books on a regular basis. So, like you, when this came out, man, I was all about it. And it was in my early days online. Mm. I had just gotten AOL. Because you, you either did that or like Com, uh, CompuServe or whatever in the right. 90s. And I went to the DC site regularly and they had black and white previews of the first few pages of this first issue. Oh, wow. And I was just like, I was just like, I'm there, I'm there. It's Burn, it's Superman, it's Batman, I'm there. So, yeah, it was, it was like, you know, this and the, and all three of the Generations series I bought as they came out. So it's, it's, uh, God, I love this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a preamble. Let's actually get into it. Now, I'm going to give the creator credits once because it's the same for all four issues. Uh, John Byrne is writer, artist, and letterer. Trish Mulville Hill. Mulville Hill? That's, that's how I would pronounce it. Mulville Hill. I'm, I'm sorry, Trish, for butchering your name. I know you listen to this show regularly. Is the colorist. Heroic Age did color separations, Jameson, the interior separations, Superman created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, Batman created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. So the way these these issues are set up is is a four-issue series. Each issue covers two years, and all the years are separated by ten. So you have 1939 and 1949 in the first issue. And the way Byrne did it, and I love this, is he took as much as possible, 
the heroes as they appeared in that era, both their look and their personality and the kind of stories they were involved in, and recreated that. So the Batman in 1939 has the fold-out bat wings and the big circle for his belt buckle. And Superman has the more, uh, he has the triangular shield, although he doesn't have the lace-up boots, which I was a little disappointed in. Yeah, that was a, uh, a little, um, it would have been neat to see him do that trick, but right around this time, the Superman books did a storyline where, where all four of the books went to a different era. Oh, and, yeah. And Bogdanov and, and Simonson did the Golden Age, and they drew the kind of Action Comics number one Superman, uh, which was kind of interesting to see. I doubt that had any influence or you know, impact on why he chose to draw him the way he did in this story. But, uh, but yeah, that would have been cool to see. Yeah. Um, something else that we discover in this, this one is the world's fair was not New York in 1939. Oh no. I mean, if it's, <laughs> if it's going to be, uh, if it's going to be in the DC universe, it's going to be a metropolis. Right. I mean, seriously. <laughs> and the, uh, so that means that the all-star squadron in this universe did not actually meet at the World's Fair for their uh, their, their regular meetings because the Unisphere and Trilon are pretty much destroyed in this first story. Well, you know, not to jump to the second series, uh, but they actually deal with the JSA, and I just got the idea that the All-Star Squadron didn't exist in this reality, that it was just the Justice Society. That's that's the way it it seems, yeah. Uh, Now, just as a quick overview... Of the first year, 1939, it's subtitled The Vigilantes, because both Batman and Superman are vigilantes in this. In fact, Superman is back to how he was in 1939. He's willing to let people die Mm -hmm. if he needs to be. Well, we have Bruce Wayne and his uh, fiancée, Julie, flying in in the autogyro, landing in the middle of everything, uh, as a giant robot busts out of a building controlled by the ultra humanite and julie is saved by superman lifting the robot up and then crunching into a ball and throwing me in the river uh later on superman and batman boat or i'm sorry superman leaps away batman goes to investigate the building the same time as clark kent and lois lane do uh batman grabs some evidence from lois and clark tries to interfere batman hits him realizing that this man is possibly a robot, because it was like hitting a steel girder, but Clark fakes being hurt anyway. You do not want to pick a fight with this man. No. (laughs) Then you have the ultra-humanite and his three henchmen, including L, the letter L, a red-haired man. Uh, Basically, the ultra-humanite saying, what the hell did he find? You were supposed to sweep the place. Then... Bruce and Julie are in a apparently a three-star dump, although it looks like a five-star hotel to me. They have a lavish breakfast while Lois consists on a bagel, a cup of coffee, and a cigarette. This will play in later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone goes back to the fair the next day. They run across the Flying Grayson's poster uh, and something straight out of Mask of the Phantasm. Bruce goes to look at cars at the World's Fair. Julie finally gets bored and goes away so that Bruce can go and do some more research. Here he is surprised to find Lois Lane is investigating as well, who can really, to uh, quote, I can't, 
What was the name of the show she was in? Uh, Leah Thompson. The show? Yeah, she was on a TV show where she was a cartoonist. Uh, Damn. Yeah, I watched reruns of yeah, that. But I, her, I just... Her, her, her friend was really freaking hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, she at, at one point in the show, she's listening to all the different skills she has, and one of them is she can kick really high. Well, so can Lois Lane. <laughs> I mean, she kicks one of the henchmen from, you know, just standing... Kicks him square in the jaw. Yeah. With her legs straight out. That is, that's awesome. But she's overpowered. Bruce tackles him. Tackles one of the guys trying to uh, hopefully not be seen, but gets tased. Lois gets knocked out. And they're both saved by Dick Grayson, who is, what, like seven at this point? Mm-hmm. I think that they, they, uh, they don't actually mention when he's born, I don't think. Or they do in a later issue because, yeah, we'll get to it. So Batman goes back that night, and the crooks had left a a truck. One of them goes back to get it, and is met with a fist right in the face. <laughs> He's brought to the top of the Unisphere, or they're calling it something different. I don't remember what, what it is, though. And Batman wants information. Crook won't give it to him, so Batman lets him go. And he falls. Superman grabs him, brings him back up, and they have this lovely little exchange. Superman says, you know, Batman said, uh... If I'd known you were there to catch him, I wouldn't have let him fall. To which Superman replies, If I'd known you let him fall, I wouldn't have caught him. <laughs> which sums up both of them very well in 1939. Yep, absolutely. So they eventually find out that the ultra-humanite is hidden in... His hideout is in Prosperity Plaza. But there is no Prosperity Plaza on the Metropolis or the World's Fair map. But Superman has an idea. It's in the miniature City of Tomorrow. And there's a hidden hatch. They go down. Both heroes surprise the ultra-humanite who rockets off in the Pyramax, which is the Trilon. And Superman tosses the Unisphere at him, which was a bomb. And it explodes, and all that comes down is a burnt-up red wig, which Superman just puts the puts two and two together and figures out that this is somebody that he used to know. And the two heroes and Lois walk off into, well, it wouldn't be the sunset, it's kind of just a white panel. So that's the introduction, and I have to say, when I first read that, wow. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I love this era of both characters. Uh, the The Golden Age is such kind of a, like, you know, wild territory you know it's just like wild the wild wild west almost of both characters because you know both jerry siegel and joe schuster and either gardner fox and bill finger and bob kane were kind of stretching their legs trying to figure out who these characters were and 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 how they were going to act uh one of my favorite bits of information i've learned over the years is that superman was actually made to be more of a law and order type character based on batman Yes. Uh, which just makes me laugh when you consider how the worm has turned uh, <laughs> in regards to both characters. But anytime you can set a story, a, a Superman story in the Golden Age, I just, like, I love the look. I love the feel. I love the three P, you know, Clark in a three P suit and a, and a fedora. Mm-hmm. And Lois, you know, in her outfits and Batman in that, you know, straight cape, as I'll call it. Uh, outfit and and just everything about it burn 
when Byrne does backgrounds, Byrne does backgrounds very well. And he does a great uh, job of capturing the feel of, you know, 1939 America. Yes. Uh, and both characters act accordingly. I like, I have such an affection for the rough and tumble Superman. The guy that's just starting out. Not a, not He's not moving planets yet. He's not, you know, counting the grains of sand on Mars. Uh, he's just, you know, a guy with who's stronger and, and faster and, you know, less killable than everybody else. And he's just, you know, he's just uh, knocking heads across Metropolis. And I, I like that because I think that's always how Superman should start his career. That when he, for even even when he's at full power, he starts small as he starts to figure out what he can actually do. And then, you know, he starts, you know, he goes from thinking locally to thinking globally. This is the thinking local, locally Superman. And that one line where he's like, well, you know, if I knew you had dropped him, I wouldn't have caught him. That's this Superman. We're talking about a character that in his second appearance threw like seven guys to their death. Yeah. Okay, you know, with guns wrapped around their necks. So this is a guy who's pretty, you know, pretty determined to, you know, mete out justice however he can. And so is Batman. And all the little touches, you know, like Bruce Wayne landing and then trying to buy off the cops. And the cops are like, I don't know what it's like in Gotham, but you can't buy your way out of trouble here. And even like the Fleischer influences, like when Superman really first appears, he's fighting a robot. Right. Uh, because there is nothing more awesome than Superman fighting a robot. And the fact uh, that Superman is squinting through this mm-hmm. whole one. Yeah, it, I mean, he opens his eyes later on, but this is very on model for how Superman was back then. And when some guy yells at him for destroying it, he he, he intimidates him. Yeah. He just stares him down. It's beautiful. And Byrne manages to capture that first Bob Kane Batman in so many of the shots. Just like artistically, it, it's just it is a sight to behold, and I and I like when Clark sees him. One, he is not Batman; he is Bat Hyphen Man. Yes, uh, and the, even the word balloon changes when he says the name, uh, and you know Batman is doing his best Michael Keaton. Uh, <laughs> uh, the one part of this story of this chapter that makes me sad is uh, Lois smoking. Yeah. And and saying, you know, don't don't forget the cigarettes packed with nutritional value. It's just it's a bit of foreshadowing that you didn't see at the time. But uh it's but, just realizing what happens later in the story. It's just it's just tinged with sadness now. Yeah, but it <clears throat> excuse me, but it is also very true to the time period because you have oh, yeah, doctors absolutely. saying, "No, this cigarette is better for you than that other cigarette." <laughs> you had Jack Benny <clears throat> I have no idea what's wrong with my throat this morning. You have Jack Benny's program being sponsored by Lucky Strike. Well, I mean, flash forward to like the '60s, where Barney and Barney Rubble and Fred Flintstone were enjoying, uh, uh, I believe it was Winston's. Yeah. Uh, you know, like animated characters smoking. So yeah, there was a point where everyone thought it was okay and not bad for you. Uh. And then around, right around 1964, they started realizing, hey, maybe that's not quite the case. Right. So, but it's just, I, I love Lois, you know, Lois got spunk, you know, to quote Lou Grant. Um, I, the only thing that kind of, I don't, it's not that I dislike it. It's just the only 
point, the only thing about it that I don't love, I guess I should say, hmm. is I didn't like seeing Dick Grayson. It did did feel kind of forced. Yeah, like, he had to put him there. And, you know, to be fair, he works him into the story. It's not like, you know, it's just, it's not like, hey, you know, hey, look, there's that boy, Dick Grayson. I'm going to keep my eye on him. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, Dick actually does something. And to be fair, you know, we see things for the Flying Graysons earlier in the in the chapter so it you know it's set up that they're at least there right but, but yeah it's just like eh, did i really need to see them working together now this is when he's solo that, that's the whole point yeah so i mean it's it's a great intro to the whole story and <clears throat> i i i know i'm gonna jump ahead a little bit here but i like this whole series because i think this cemented in my mind my preferred way which will never happen but my preferred way to handle superheroes and that is in a legacy fashion the old the original hero ages out of the part the next either the sidekick or somebody else comes in to fill the void and you go like that you get to you know batman 25 or whatever it's never it's never gonna happen (laughs) because you're you're never gonna have bruce wayne not be batman in mainstream DC continuity, except for a, a brief story arc. But it's so it, reading this, it's like, God, I wish all comics were like that. Well, that, that was Byrne's entire point of doing the series, was what if these characters started in 1939 and went forward? And he, and he did two things. One, he specifically put in inconsistencies in the history yeah, because there were inconsistencies as the characters developed. So any any quote unquote mistake with continuity within the story is completely on purpose. But also it was to see, you know, who would excuse me, who would be the, the next generation of Superman, who would be the next generation of Batman, and to kind of mimic, like you said, those time periods where if it's taking place in nineteen thirty nine, they're gonna look and feel like they were in nineteen thirty nine. So I, I and and right down to having Ultra Humanite be the bad guy mm-hmm. because that was Superman's first real kind of supervillain. Really, was the Ultra Humanite was a bald guy that ju- that started off with a taxicab scheme. <laughs> Still trying to figure that that, that, ish, that story is so weird because it starts off as this really standard like original Superman story where he's like taking down like a crooked taxicab sc- uh, uh, company and then it turns into a supervillain. And, like, science fiction. So it's, like, really the point where Superman started to change. And I just love that we see L, mm-hmm. and we see a red wig, but at the same time, Ultra Humanite's the bad guy in this story. And he's a he's an old man in, in, in what I will term 90s burn outfit. <laughs> because this outfit is something burn. This isn't 80s burn. This isn't 70s burn. This is 90s burn. Uh, which is odd because it's set in 1939. But, you know, everything else is just so on point. You know, Batman doesn't have a yellow oval around his bat, and he won't until the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Superman has a triangular S and a shorter cape. I mean, just like everything about it is just so on point. And I, I could really, I love starting with this one because it just gets you into the mood for the entire series. But yes. at the same time, you want to see more adventures of these two characters, not necessarily together, but I want to see this Superman going on his adventures, and I want to see this Batman, you know, you know, fighting Doctor Death in Gotham City. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really well done. And one thing I have to say, a lot of people, 
and sometimes rightly so, complain that John Byrne has characters that they all look alike. Everyone's faces, all the women look the same, all the men look the same. Not so much in this series. If you look, uh, the one panel on page 11 of the Ultra Humanite and his three henchmen, they all look different. Mm-hmm. All of them. You know, this, the same thing with uh, the, the police officers that Bruce Wayne runs into. Different faces. So it's it may be that on his monthly work, he was going to, oh, I need male model one or female model two or whatever. But here he makes the effort and goes, gives each face its own character. And you can always tell going forward as they age, it's still the same face. It's just a different age, mm-hmm. which is absolutely, which is not easy to do. Yeah, you, know, you can draw old man face and young man face. They, but to make them the same person that you can instantly tell they're the same person is not an easy trick. Most artists can't really do it. So, is there anything else on thirty nine, or should we move on to forty nine? Let's let's move on to a a slightly goofier. Age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, slightly goofier. Okay. All right, nineteen forty nine, subtitled "Family Matters." We open with the Joker holding a pregnant Lois Lane captive in a laboratory. And as she is, you know, telling him, you know, my husband will have contacted Superman by now, the Joker, you know, brushes that aside. Listen, I know that you're married to Superman. Knock it off. At which point Superman busts through the window, as Superman does. And the Joker exposes him to green kryptonite which Superman collapses to the floor and then suddenly grabs the Joker's wrists and plucks the kryptonite out of his hand. Shocked, the Joker doesn't know what to do, and then Superman is shot in the back by Lex Luthor, who comes out from a hidden hiding place. The Luthor explains that this wasn't you know, anything special, it was just a regular bullet, and that's because he pulls off the... Rubber mask <laughs> over the Batman cowl, including the ears. Love it. <laughs> and then we flash back in time, because that's how these stories worked. Back to the Batcave, which I will pause in the synopsis here and just say, this is burn tech at its best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Batcave is multi-story, computers everywhere, and these are 1949 computers, remember. You know, the, the entire computing power of the Batcave is less than your iPhone. But Batman is talking to Alfred, and they're going over the fact that, well, you know, Dick's about to leave for college. If he wants to say goodbye, he knows where to find me, and the whole way that they've handled Batman with Dick going off to college before. And Dick shows up in a very interesting Robin outfit, which looks a lot like the Tim Drake version mixed with the Earth 2 Robin. Mm-hmm. And I love it. It looks great. It looks fantastic. I love it. So Batman and Robin go to visit Commissioner Gordon, but this is not Jim Gordon, who is, at the at this point, I believe he was m- missing, presumed dead. And this is my Generations 2 knowledge coming in. And it's Tony Gordon, Commissioner Gordon's son, says that a man with green hair was sighted at the Gotham Metallurgical Institute. They don't know what the Joker wants there, so they go to investigate, and f- looking over the clipboard of what was stolen, the Batman realizes Superman is in danger. So they take the Batplane, and this is Batplane 2, because I remember that story from the greatest Batman stories ever told. 
And they fly to Metropolis. Superman meets them, and he they fill him in that, oh, well, guess what? The metal stolen from Gotham was kryptonite. So we cut back to where the story began, and we have Superman and Robin. Superman using his X-ray vision, super hearing, and super ventriloquism to fill Robin in on exactly what's happening inside. And Robin's kind of creeped out by the way he, Superman is doing Luthor's voice. <laughs> Which goes back to the Superman the Animated Series episode where Superman did Robin's voice and creeped him out. Yes. I Gotham Knights. I love that episode. It's Batman going to town on Bane. I mean, Superman going to town on Bane. How can you not like that episode? <laughs> so, Robin comes up with a, an alternate plan to Superman just busting in there. And... While they are working this out, they give the backstory about how the Joker was captured by the Russians after World War II, and it was in a Soviet gulag. Luthor found out where he was and busted him out in some really interesting high-tech way and proposed, well, you, I helped you out, you do this for me, because, I mean, the Joker is an honorable man and pays his debts. So, after that story wraps up, Superman flies in, and at this point, Lois blows the complete the secret completely wide open, says, Clark, no. After all this, no, he, they're two different people. Why yeah. you would admit to Lex Luthor and the Joker that, yes, he is Clark Kent, I have no idea. But anyway, <clears throat> the Joker whisks Lois behind a lead sheet. Superman stands there while Luthor explains that he has something for a present for Superman. And as he goes to open a container, a two beams of heat vision melt it. Luthor calls Superman a liar for claiming they wouldn't stop him. But then this Superman says, and I didn't Luthor. And off panel we have, but I did. And there is another Superman. <laughs> because this Superman was Robin. So the Joker puts a gun to Lois's head. And at that point, Batman gets up because he wasn't really hurt. Knocks the Joker out. Luthor opens the green K container, puts it on the Joker, and pulls the Joker off to a rocket ship. And since this worked so well ten years ago, Batman throws a batarang, knock, uh, it lodges in the rocket's launch rail, and they manage to capture... <clears throat> I'm sorry. They manage to escape just before the rocket blows up. Presumably, haha, killing the Joker and Luthor. But we know that's not ever going to happen. So they go through and explain, well, why didn't Superman just bust in? Because Luthor had a catacomb of tunnels, all lead-lined, so they didn't know exactly where he was. The reason Batman's not dead is Superman used his split-second timing of super breath and heat vision to melt the bullet and knock over Batman dressed as Superman. However, it turns out that Lois was exposed to gold kryptonite, which, as everyone knows completely alters the molecular structure of Kryptonian, making them powerless forever. Which means that the little baby, Joel, inside her, will never have powers. So they decide the only way to keep Joel from going completely batty, if you'll excuse the phrase, is to never tell him that he is the son of Superman. Batman and Robin head back. They switch the bat plane into batcopter mode to land in the bat cave. While we go to one year later, Alfred is tending the bees at Wayne Manor, and Bruce Wayne's new bride 
comes out with her face covered in a beekeeper's mask and says she has something important to tell Bruce, and behind her we see a ball of yarn and a knitted baby booty. Now, this is something that I don't think Byrne has ever said who Bruce Wayne's wife is, correct? Nope, never revealed it, and he shouldn't. He, he, he really shouldn't. No, he shouldn't. Um, now, there's, there's no point in it. Now, we happen to know from Generations 2 that it is not Catwoman. Yes. Because Catwoman is mentioned somewhere else, so this is, it could be Julie, his fiance from 1939 could be another woman. We don't know. There could be Vicky Vale. Could be Vicky Vale. Could be um, what's her name? Silver Saint Cloud. Silver Saint Cloud. I was gonna say Summer Saint Cloud. That wasn't right. That's I'm mixing up Silver Saint Cloud and Summer Gleason. Could, could be Vesper Fairchild. Yeah. If you really want to get a uh, like 90s Batman yeah, all up could, in that joint. So anyone that Bruce Wayne never had a relationship could be his wife. And <clears throat> now this is. This strikes me more as a early 50s story than a late 40s, but I'm not well-versed in that era of either Batman or Superman, but it is definitely more on the sci-fi side of things. Yeah, I mean, you have uh, you have all the Luther tech. Uh, you have, you know, him using, basically spending millions of dollars in equipment to pull off uh, rather tame schemes. It's like Marv Wolfman always said. He'd use a million-dollar robot to steal $500,000 from a bank. Hmm. Uh, I, I think the real charm of this chapter is all the little tropes of Batman disguised as Superman and then <laughs> Robin disguised as Superman, which they did frequently in the world's finest stories to avoid kryptonite. The um, Him taking off the mask and the cow being under there makes me makes me smile so hard <laughs> uh, it's one of those things that makes no sense but who cares comics and the other thing that i love is that apparently these these temporary superman costumes are composed of the thinnest of materials yeah because robin just rips it right off uh that and they just don't care i, I guess yeah. i guess it didn't really cost all that much to make so they you know batman tears his off too yeah well originally in what was it in so it was like their supposedly their first team-up, didn't they use the the colored parachutes from the Batplane to make up a Superman outfit? That sounds familiar. I think it was in either Greatest Batman or Greatest Superman stories. I don't, I don't remember. I, I remember reading it, but... It, yeah, this, this is like they're made out of tissue paper. But Batman has the shorter ears. Mm. He has a smile on his face through most of the story. He's kind of big and broad as he was in the in the late 40s and the 50s. Uh, Superman's a little thinner, his cape's shorter, uh, which I, I appreciate that attention to detail. It's also kind of ironic, because one of the things I loved about Burns' Superman when I first started picking up the titles back in 1987 was that the cape was long and flowing, and here he's kind of doing the exact opposite of that. Yeah. Uh, the Joker is a much thicker uh, Joker, uh, which is time period appropriate. Uh, Robin's costume is great. I love the long pants. I love the black gloves and the black boots. One of my favorite moments, though, in this story is the Joker in a Soviet gulag. Yes. Being put to hard labor. And I'm trying to remember if this was something that was keyed off of the Batman Captain America one shot that Byrne did. Because apparently that's in generations continuity is it 
Yes, that is an unofficial chapter of Generations. Huh, I have to pick uh, that retroactively, up Retroactively, because he did that one first. Right. But still, there, there is something in there, and I don't know exactly where it is, and I think Andy Leyland can tell me where this is, but there's a point in the stories where you can see where it fits, uh, and I've never read it in that order before, so, uh, but I'm, I'm kind of wondering if what happened to the Joker in that story kind of led him to this, basically. So, mm. but I just like the idea that, you know, they've had their, their, their glory days of, you know, World War II in the, in the, in the, 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 the mid forties, basically. And now everyone's just kind of moving on. And the Joker ended up in a Soviet gulag. I mean, it's <laughs> so weird, but it's, it's so fitting. Yeah. And I lo- love the look of Luther's device that rescues him. This uh, giant tank that turns into a helicopter. Yeah, it's, it actually leaves half of itself behind. It leaves the wheels behind to take off. So you have to wonder, are the Soviets now going to reverse engineer that? But Luther is heavy set and... Obviously rich. He's in a penthouse. Yeah, more, I mean, this is kind of like Burns, Burns Luther from his uh, traditional run on Superman. So. Right. But no, just everything about this story is is just fantastic. The, the split-second timing of Superman using his super breath and heat vision to knock uh, Batman over and vaporize the bullet. Uh, you know, the, the different tech that Batman has where his plane turns into a helicopter as well though how that thing's going to land where it is because those propellers look like they're bigger <laughs> the, uh... yeah the entrance is about a, a half the size of the propeller diameter so it's going it's going to go down suddenly shut off and drop the rest of the way uh, you know and Superman's more powerful because he's got um X-ray vision and microscopic vision to the point where you can look at the atomic structure of the child. Yes. And and on a story level, this is important because this is where the setup of the fall of Superman's son begins. Because they make the decision to not tell him that his father is Superman. And I, I think it, it's one of those things where the story has to play out this way, but... You know, if you're thinking about it on a quote-unquote realistic level, which you really don't want to apply this story to because it's supposed to be fun, but really, you know, why not tell him? Would it really... If you tell him and then make him feel bad because he doesn't have (laughs) powers, that's one thing. But it's just like, you know, when you were were in utero, something happened, and I'm sorry you just don't have your powers, but that doesn't mean that you can't be a hero. Look at your mother. She has no superpowers, but she went on to become one of the most fearless investigative reporters on the planet. Look at your Uncle Bruce. Yeah, look at your Uncle Bruce. I mean, you know, you're not... Basically, what they're saying is that he's almost handicapped, uh, which isn't the case at all. And it ends up coming to bite them in the ass rather biblically. But that also did fit with this time period, because anyone... And just look at uh, Agent Carter, the TV Mm -hmm. series for that. You have the one guy who was injured in World War II and now has a false leg. And everyone treats him like he's a, a useless cripple. Well, it's it's that's the the mindset of back then. It's like, well, uh, he he's human. He if his father's Superman, he'll never measure up. Therefore, we can't ever tell him for his own mental health. It's just the way they thought back then. You know, if you had any deficiency, then you know you weren't you were worthless. 
Which I'll uh, I'll agree with that. I'm I'll not agree. saying it's right. I'm just saying that's how they thought. So no, I I, <laughs> I didn't think you were you were making a judgment call no. on all of humanity right <laughs> now. <laughs> I've been known to do that, but not right now. <laughs> so, but no this this is one of the this is one of those things that you know he he manages to capture the feel of that era. And it's really funny that the eras that I am not as interested in as others are the chapters that I read and go, oh, that was fun, but really kind of move on quickly because I want to get to the eras that I like, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yes, yes, it does, because you you have this completist mentality. You must get through this because you can't just jump. You have to start here. That's why it's I'm about... A third of the way through the the Lantern cast right now because I have to start at the beginning and they have almost 300 episodes. <laughs> you're going to email them about something they talked about five years ago? I've learned my lesson on that. <laughs> it's a gentle post. <laughs> <laughs> All right, shall we jump to issue number two? Yes. All right. If you thought the last one was strange, this is even stranger. In fact, it's right in the title. 1959, Strange Days. We open with Batman in his whirly bat, one one of the best bat devices ever, chasing a warehouse with six legs. So, obviously, the only way to stop this warehouse is for Batman to rope it and ride it like a Bronco. (laughs) And it bucks, just like a Bronco. Eventually settling down... Batman swings down and calls to Batmite to show himself, but it isn't Batmite, it's Mixia Spitlick. So before we find out exactly what's going going on over here, we switch to Metropolis, where we have a, what would you call him, about a thousand feet tall? Yeah, probably. Superman with, basically looks like the Frankenstein monster, picking up a freighter. Jimmy, with his Mentallo helmets is telling Superman to put it down, and just so happens that it is exactly 24 hours since Superman was exposed to Red Kryptonite, and he pops back to normal. We cut to the Kent household, where little Kara Kent is running in, trying to tell her mommy to look at something. Then Lois, finally done with the TV report on Superman, looks and says, Oh, your feet look fine, sweetie. What's wrong? And Kara says, But mommy, they're not touching the ground. Which kind of frightens Lois. So, we go back to Superman and a balding Jimmy Olsen, and suddenly Batmite shows up. Then we switch back to Batman and Mixie Spitlick. I'm just going to call him Mixie from here, just because I need to, you know, save my voice. <laughs> and I'm going to have people, regardless of how I pronounce it, it's not Mixelplick Shag, I'm sorry, that I'm not going to be right, so... Commissioner Gordon is worried that Mixie is going to turn them all into kangaroos or something, which Mixie partially does it to uh, Gordon and changes him back. And we switch over to Batmite, making the entire city of Metropolis march in a parade. And what I don't mean the people, I mean the buildings. And he tells Superman what's going on. Apparently, he and Mixie were brought up to an alien spaceship. And within this flashback, we get another flashback of the aliens saying that they were a peaceful race with no defenses whatsoever, and they were conquered by this other race, the Borton Empire. And they laid waste to the planet, but the aliens used stolen technology to find Earth, 
because that is the home of all superheroes, and they see the Justice Society. Now, this is the only appearance of the Justice Society in this series, but it is great because it is Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Jay Garrick Flash, the Alan Scott Superman, Hawkman, which is, I'm assuming, Carter Hall, and the Al Pratt Adam. So they build this ship over years of from salvaged parts and head out to Earth. But because of a fight, they lose most of their fuel in avoiding uh, laser blasts, and they realize they can only take one hero back with them. So they get to Earth, and, well, obviously the two greatest are Superman and Batman. They have to figure out which. So they brought in Mixie and Batmite, and they have to prove that their hero is the best. But in order to do it and be fair about it, they have switched heroes. So after explaining all this, Batmite brings the, I don't know what it is, it's a giant reptilian creature from a billboard to life, and... Rather than see the fight with that, we switch back to the Kent household, where Lois digs out a Red Sun Pendant, which will nullify Kara's powers until they can figure out how to control them. We switch over to the Batcave, where Bruce Jr., with the unfortunate nickname of BJ, is practicing in the Robin suit, which Alfred tells him, you know, you really shouldn't be doing that, your mom doesn't want you to. And they reminisce about how Dick is now a DA in New York City, and how he won't be Batman for a while because he's fighting crime another way. And at this point, Dick shows up. And they reminisce a little more, and we switch to Batman, back in the Whirly Bat, going after a giant robot which is destroying Gotham City. Batman goes down to a steam shovel and hits the robot. We don't see what happens because we switch back to Metropolis, where Superman is holding off the creature, but decides, now, nah, if Mohammed can't come to the mountain, we'll take the mountain to Mohammed, and creates a giant tornado, sucking up both Batmite and the creature, and goes to Gotham, where he dumps the creature on top of Mixie's robot. Batmite and Mixie have an argument about peanut butter and chocolate, and then they create a giant Cthulhu-like old god kind of creature, which dwarfs Gotham City, Batman flies away, because, you know, he, he doesn't want to deal with this. And then Batmite grabs the Whirly Bat, knocking Batman out. Superman saves him, but the creature smacks them both, and then, boom, crushes them, apparently. Mixie and Batman are, are <clears throat> sorry, Mixie and Batmite are arguing, oh, you... You know, it's your problem, you killed them, etc. The aliens show up and say, oh, well, you defeated both Superman and Batman. You're the ones to save our planet. So they steal both of them, and they leave. The creatures all disappear, the destruction is still there, and you have the standard, oh, it's a good thing you dug so quickly out of the way before we got stomped, etc. And the last panel of this story is an old man, Lex Luthor, going to talk to Joel Kent and telling him that he has something important to tell him. Dun, dun, dun. Usually old men approaching small boys is not good. I mean, I, I just picture Chris Hansen coming out and <laughs> we're saying... Not, we're not talking about the origin of Captain Marvel here. <laughs> Come, little boy, follow me into this subway tunnel where no one will see us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, uh, I mentioned before that I, I have different eras of both characters that I prefer over others. I am not a big 50s Batman type guy. Mm. I don't hate that stuff. I'm not saying it shouldn't exist. 
because it happened and there are people out there that love silver age batman and the the kind of out there ideas that happened and and similarly part of me despises batmite <laughs> but you know he his, some of his stories are part of my earliest comic book reading experiences uh, going back to Superman from the 30s to the 70s, which I checked out of the... And Batman from the 30s to the 70s, which I checked out of the library, you know, constantly. And similarly with Superman, you know, while I... Th- there isn't an era of Superman that I hate, and there isn't even an era of Superman I don't like uh, outside of the con- the current era, and that's not me, you know, being like an old fan grousing about it. I just think that, you know, when you when you look at the stories told in the last 5 to 15 years... Uh, they're not as good consistently as other eras. But this one hits all of the notes of both the, the Silver Age Batman and Superman. You have Batmite, and you have Superman exposed to green kryptonite and turned into a Frankenstein's monster, and Jimmy wearing this bizarre <laughs> headpiece and all that, and aliens showing up, and you know them doing kind of a contest of champions type thing, where it's just like, okay, we got this these aliens that want to figure out who the most powerful is. So Mixes Pitalik and Batmite are going to fight that out uh, with it. And then you have going again, back to some of my earliest comic book reading experiences. You have uh, Bat, uh, Bruce's son who's blonde, mm. uh, which should be a hint. <laughs> deal. Uh, you know, wanting to be Robin and, you know, Dick Grayson kind of coming back to town and, you know, very soon he's going to be taken over for his day de- for, for Bruce. It's just, it's a fun story, but this is my least favorite of a series that I love. Yes, and that's, you know, it's like saying it's your least favorite type of pizza. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's a good story. I've never I've never really enjoyed the Imp from Another Dimension kind of stories, except in the more modern, post-crisis, the way Byrne handled Mixie, mm-hmm. and how the rules always changed. How it was, well, yeah, you get me to say my name backwards here, but no, 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 that's not the rule this time. This time, it's this. You have to get me to do that, or whatever. And it was it was a little more toned down, but then you also have the animated series with Gilbert Gottfried as, as Mixie, and you don't get any better than that, really. No, not really. <laughs> not at all. But that's... I don't rem- See, I don't remember him on the Super Friends... I know I watched he, the Super Friends. He was on it. He, he he did yeah. a whole Wizard of Oz thing, and then he... Uh, oh, the Wizard of Oz. Oh, I he forgot was, about that. He was on the Superpowers version of the show, too, uh, messing with Firestorm. Okay, see, I didn't really watch ma- much of the Superpowers line. I don't, I don't know why I had all those figures. Well, not all of them. I, I had a good portion of them. But I don't... I, I think the last one, the last Super Friends cartoon I actively watched was Challenge of the Super Friends. Yeah, Mixie was done by the same voice as the guy that did Toy Man. Ah, okay. Uh, <laughs> if I'm remembering, that's how I remember it at least. I haven't watched those episodes because the the, the Mixie episodes were they were never my favorite as a kid. So that's kind of carried on as an adulthood. And I and and that's the thing is like you know because of the post crisis version of the character, I have a lot of affection for Mister Mixes Pitalik. Mm-hmm. Not so much the Euro Trash version that they uh, had in Smallville, but oh. you know I, I I like him as a character and what he represented to Superman in the forties. He was 
part of Jerry Siegel. You know, Jerry Siegel was a frustrated comedic writer. <laughs> uh, and Mixiez Tipolik, as he was originally called, uh, was an attempt to have this really goofy element, this funny element in, in Superman's The Straight Man. And that's why that episode of Superman the Animated Series is so brilliant, is they capture that perfectly. Right. It, it's it's just everything it needs to be. It's it's Superman sitting there. One of my favorite moments in that episode is him sitting in the, in the Daily Planet office. It's like, what's going on? Expecting a friend. And all this weird stuff just starts to happen, and Superman's just got this <sighs> look on his face. And it's just... <laughs> It's just beautiful. And, but here we have the, this is the goofiest thing ever. However, even though it's not my cup of tea, I recognize that Byrne is tapping into that bizarre anything is possible feeling that the 40s and the late 40s and the 50s stories had. Oh, yeah. You know, anything was possible. And I love the fact that this is kind of, it's not an eight pager. But it's almost an eight pager because that's how comics, you know, that's how comic stories were structured back then. You got three to sometimes more stories an issue. Well, if you so, take out the the flashes to the other locations, then it is pretty much eight pages. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I I like that Byrne keeps reminding us that this, you know, as much as we're reminiscing and 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 playing on this, you know, certain time periods. There is an overall story happening, and Kara finding out that she has powers, Lois continuing to smoke, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Bruce's son, BJ, really? Um, <laughs> That's why I said, unfortunate nickname. <laughs> wanting wanting to be Robin and training, even though his mother has basically, you know, forbidden it. We have an older Alfred, we have Dick coming home, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, from, from where he was, so... As Jeffrey and I sometimes joke on From Crisis to Crisis, all subplots are accounted for. Yes. And I like that because that is what I am, in the end, that is what I'm invested in as a reader. As a fan, as as somebody who likes to wax nostalgic uh, on, on a regular basis, the, the different eras and their feeling and the way Byrne evokes their feelings is fine, but as a reader... I am interested in how these characters are developing. It's the beauty of Generations is that while it is him telling stories from bygone eras, it is also him telling a story. And it's a, you know, the, the story's called Generations. It's a generational story. And we're now just starting to see that element of it where we're seeing the next generation coming up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's going to get interesting uh, very shortly. Mm hmm. And shall we head on? Yes. Okay, 1969, Changing Times. Boy, are they not kidding. All right, we start with a peace protest in front of the White House where President Nixon is complaining to the Justice Society that they really should be either helping to get these protesters out of there or heading over to Vietnam and winning the war for him. When they refuse, he kicks them out. So we have Wonder Woman, The Flash, and Green Lantern all depart. And Superman and Batman, who has a yellow oval and is Dick Grayson, heading back to the Batcopter. Or actually, to me, it looks like the uh, flying Batcave. What do you think? Yes, on a that? little yeah. bit. I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> so they're basically, Superman is worried because his son had en- enlisted in the army and is in Vietnam now. And Bruce Jr. is about to 
go into service because he refuses to let Bruce use his influence to get him out of the draft. So we cut to the grave of Alfred Thaddeus Crane Pennyworth, who died apparently two years prior. Bruce is sitting there wondering, you know, what what to do, and the ghost of Alfred shows up. Now, Bruce isn't sure whether this is an actual ghost or a mental instability in himself, but he's going to talk it over anyway. So they basically go on about how it's you know, catching us up on what happened over the last ten years, and then Bruce bids Alfred adieu because he has to get back to the Batcave and play Kevin Conroy because Dick and Bruce Jr. are off visiting the Joker in prison, and they're asking him about Joker Jr., who has apparently been, he claims to be the Joker's son, but the Joker says, I don't have a son, I don't have a protege, so you're out of luck. They leave the prison in the Batboat and head back to Gotham City. And neither of them are convinced that the Joker has nothing to do with it, but they're going to follow whatever leads they can. So we cut to Metropolis, where Lois Lane is just getting the news that she has cancer and will die. And the doctor is trying to make her see reason, yes, we can treat you, and Lois is having none of it. Go back into the waiting room, where Kara is going to take her home, uh, Kara has a very worried look on her face because with super hearing she can overhear everything. They go up to the roof and Ka- her daughter changes into Supergirl putting on a black wig, which is explained in Generations 2. It's actually bonded to her bio-aura, so it's not going to fall off. So, the the Kent women fly home as we cut to Vietnam. There's a squad apparently over the border and they are being led by Lieutenant Joel Kent, who is, the the best way to put it is he's bloodthirsty. And he came across a village, and he's sure it's a Viet Cong camp. Well, they attack, they slaughter pretty much the whole village, and there are no combatants there. So all the men want to get back before they are found out to have slaughtered innocent civilians. But Kent is going to leave no witnesses and kill the rest of the people, and one of his men cocks a gun, and we'll find out what happens later. So we go back to the Batcave, where Bruce, Dick, and Bruce Jr. are talking, out, talking over what is going on with Joker Jr. And Bruce Jr. suggests using his emergency bat suit and his bat voice to have two Batman searching. And that, Dick's, no, that, that's not going to work because we have to only have one Batman. I'm sorry, Bruce says that. Because apparently the there's an illusion in the public's mind that there has only ever been one Batman. So they split up, Dick going to the Gotham Diamond Exchange building, because that was one of the clues that Joker Jr. had left. And Robin is going back to the prison, where the warden is not too happy to have someone visiting after lights out. Well, they go into the cell and realize that It's a dummy in the bed, not the Joker. The warden backs up into the table and knocks something off. Robin realizes that the Gotham Diamond Exchange building had been renovated. The Joker has plans that show things that were never on the official documents. Also, he finds spirit gum and makeup. He realizes what's going on and quickly exits the prison. Batman, however, has entered the Diamond Exchange building 
and is caught in a trapdoor, which, you know, obviously was right exactly where he was standing. And this is where it gets kind of disturbing, folks, so, you know, you you may want to uh, take a seat. He falls into a shaft, but it's narrow enough that he can prop himself against the walls. Well, razor-sharp blades come out of the walls, and obviously he can't prop himself against those, and he falls down, and the blades are cutting into him, some all the way to the bone. He finally comes out at the end through a gigantic Joker face and confronts Joker Jr., who looks very, very 60s. But it turns out that the, the blades were drugged with a psychotropic cocktail, and Batman is starting to see all kind of weird images, including the Joker having a huge head and then melting into two different parts. It's very Yellow Submarine here. So, Joker Jr. tips him into a bunch of giant meringue pies. Batman sees the meringue attacking him, but what's happening in reality are machine guns are popping up. Outside, Robin arrives, and the police can't get into the building. They hear gunshots. So Robin drives his motorcycle straight through the glass doors, runs down to the sub-basement, and finds Batman dead. The police rush in after Robin find Joker Jr., who rips off his wig and sideburns and claims, No more Jr., if you don't mind. I wasn't lying when I told Batman I never had a son or trained protege. So the Joker is happy because his lifelong ambition of killing Batman has been fulfilled. And from off-panel we say, No, as usual, he's lying. He didn't kill Batman. He killed Robin. So Bruce Jr. is put on his emergency bat outfit, changed clothes with Dick, and covered Dick's face because the black hair would have been a dead giveaway. In epilogue, we have Bruce Jr. comforting Kara, and Bruce Sr. coming over saying, you know, it's it's not going to be easy, but, you know, we'll, we'll get along without Batman. Bruce Jr. says, no, you'll have to use your influence. Get me out of the army. I am going to become Batman, because that's what Gotham needs. After the funeral, the Kents fly home, Superman carrying Lois and Supergirl flying next to them. They get back home and find a telegram informing them that Joel Perry Kent was reported killed in action. That's what I call a heavy issue. Yeah, this, uh, wow, he manages to capture what I will call modern interpretations of of, of the past. Uh, you know, obviously the stories, uh, the Superman and Batman stories of this era while the Batman stories were becoming increasingly relevant, I guess is the best way to say that, they never really, or if they did, they hardly ever, especially Superman stories, hardly ever dealt with the Vietnam War or protesters or whatever. And if they did, it was usually poorly handled. Right. Uh, one of my favorite bits is that uh, Nixon has a five o'clock shadow. <laughs> and that's because Nixon had to shave like twice a day. Mm-hmm. Apparently his facial hair grew super fast. So, uh, but I, I like the fact that Byrne is commenting that you know yes these heroes fought in World War II, but they're not going to fight in Vietnam because that's a different kind of battle. And yeah. I appreciated that. Now this this whole this whole chapter, as sad and as dramatic as it is, is really well done. I mean the whole thing with Alfred with Bat- Bruce at Alfred's grave. Uh, the artistic touches of everyone's hair being just a little bit longer. Uh, 60s Joker. I mean, you just kind of <laughs> expect him to go, yeah, baby. <laughs> um, you know, whenever, 
whenever you see, you know, the, the quote unquote younger Joker, mm-hmm. but I, I really like it. I mean, uh, there, there's a term, uh, in the military called fragging. And that is basically when it's basically when one American, when one American soldier kills another American soldier, usually it was lower ranking soldiers killing their commanding officer for various reasons. Uh, some were racially motivated, but others were basically this, this guy's going to get us killed. Right. So we have to take him out. And it's really like Byrne is commenting on how comics grew increasingly darker over the decades by showing us a Joel Kent who is so hell bent on proving himself. He's le- he's going over the line, abusing civilians. And finally, one of his men, you know, like takes a gun out. And as, as we're leaving that scene, you know, you get the sense they're going to shoot this guy. He's mm-hmm. gonna, they're they're going to kill him before he gets them killed. And it's, it's so sad, especially with the death of Dick Grayson, that both Clark and Bruce lose their first sons during the course of this chapter. Right. And it's on a storytelling level, it's beautiful. And there's all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, well, not fun, but like little bits like the fact that Bruce Wayne Jr. and Kara are involved. We see that at the at the end of the chapter. We see Alfred's ghost, who plays a larger part in the second generation story, mm-hmm. where we get kind of the resolution of this story. I love how Byrne draws the late 60s, uh, 70s Batman. Oh, yes. It's just gorgeous. The coloring is perfect. Everything about it just makes me happy. Yeah, and I, I like how you have... I mean, everyone's got the... Uh... Everyone's getting older has the Reed Richards effect. Obviously, they go gray from the bottom up, which mm-hmm. I can tell you exactly from experience. It don't work that way. <laughs> That's working that way for me, actually. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting gray all over, especially the beard. But have you have, uh, I would call it Chekhov's costume in the beginning yes. here? Yes, <laughs> Chekhov's costume. That's brilliant. Because, oh, hey, I just happen to have this spare Batman costume that uh, Barry Allen taught us how to shrink down into my belt buckle. And yeah, we, that's getting used later. And I love that his Batman voice is in a bat-shaped balloon. Yes. Which comes into play later in the story. So, you know, it, it's all there. Byrne doesn't do anything in this chapter that isn't hinted at, and and everything that happens in the story is layered like that. Right. Yeah, and I I really like his attention to detail in the backgrounds because mm-hmm. if you look in the Batcave scene, I'm on page 36. They it, the computer screen in the back is the clue that Dick Grayson is then running down. It's mm-hmm. the you know the make pay a visit to a multifaceted old lady who of a recent facelift. So it's, you know, he could have had anything there. So, no, I'm going to put exactly what they're about to do on the next page. So it, it's great. And, uh, I mean, it's the the last the last page is just powerful with everything Bruce going to becoming. He's going to become Batman and then realizing, oh, Joel Kent is dead. And that's that hits a, a bit close to home because that's... Um, just under a year after my uncle was reported dead. Oh, in okay. Vietnam. <laughs> so I didn't hear that? <laughs> oh, I, I wasn't alive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only three months older than you. I wasn't alive back then. But this is—it's one of those things that's always in the back of my head. While I'm reading a Vietnam story, I know you know when 
when that happened, so I know I know exactly what happened to my grandparents when they got that news. I mean, my dad still says that's what killed his mother. It's, I mean, I knew my grandmother, but he says she was never the same after they got that telegram. Yeah, and that was, you know, sadly, that was a common experience in the in the '60s. I mean, and and the early '70s. It's it's one of those things where it's almost become cliched how people talk about the Vietnam War, mm. and you know, like, because you know, it's it's comfortable from nearly you know from 40 years later, basically, that you know we can kind of talk about it like when we were in high school and we talked about World War II. Because, you know, we had no frame of reference of what that time period was like. But, you know, it, it, you know people did things, and you know, the, the protesting of that war, yeah, there was, like, counterculture elements to it. And, yeah, probably some people were doing it just, you know, to have something to do. But at the same time, you know, an entire generation of young men were getting wiped out, you know, for something that ultimately proved to be, you know, a, a useless exercise. Right. You know, it's, it's not like uh, us being in Vietnam really helped in the fight against the commies. So, <laughs> Yeah, actually, I mean, Korea you could make an argument for. Vietnam, it was pointless because as soon as we left, North took over. So was... One of the, to get on a less serious subject, <laughs> one of the neatest artistic tricks in this story is that Bruce Wayne Jr. is wearing the Burt Ward Robin costume. Yes. Look, look at the mask. Yeah. It because it exactly, goes all the way around. Uh-huh. It's it's the television series and it, it's such a subtle little thing, but it's 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 great. Um it does bring up a like like not a inconsistency, you know, Gotham thinks there's only one Batman, but obviously they know there's more than one Robin. Right. Because this guy's blonde. Yeah. I mean, you would think that he would use something a wig. To, a wig or just what whatever that the the what was it? Nighthawk, the western hero. He had mm-hmm. only a powder that colored his hair. Something like that. Oh, and speaking of Burt Ward, if you look on page 30 where they're in the bat boat, mm-hmm. Robin is punching one fist in his right fist into his left hand. Yep. Just like Burt Ward. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love that TV show. How can you not? I mean, I yeah. understand that some people look at it as something that, like, almost ruined Batman. But, man, when I was a kid, that was everything to me. Oh, yeah. I I'm... loved that show. And, see, here's the thing. I've gone through the three stages of the <laughs> Batman 66 show. I, I was loved... about to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> you love it as a kid because it's it's Batman on TV. Then you go through, oh, that's silly, it's, it's not the Batman I know, and then you come back to it later, and it's like, wait a second, he's winking at the camera. This is satire. So And it's fun, and that first season has some really good episodes. Oh, yeah. Well, a lot of the first season came right from the comics, like the Joker's utility belt. Mm-hmm. That was great. And now I can watch it with my daughter, and oh, I'm in stage three, so she's in stage one still, and it's... I don't tell her what episode it is if we're watching it, because that way she's sitting there. Is Batgirl gonna ride by? <laughs> that was that was me as a kid, man. When I was a little kid, it was the waiting game. Am yeah. I gonna see Batgirl? Is it gonna be a bat? I mean, I had no idea what seasons were, or that there was you know two years without her and then one years with, and and not even noticing that it's not a two-parter. I just I just like seeing Batgirl. Right. And as I got older, I just like seeing Yvonne Craig in the Batgirl outfit. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, or even better, her, her appearance on Star Trek. 
because that was, was a green on that, right? She was an Orion slave girl. Well, she wasn't a slave girl. She was oh, a criminal. She, they oh. were they were in the essentially the Star Trek Arkham Asylum because it was the it was their institute for the criminally insane. So she was she was a green Harley Quinn is the best way I can put it. <laughs> That's good. I uh, I think it's it's kind of interesting if, if you're looking at little details that Joel's middle name was Perry. Yes. Uh, you know, may, you think maybe that it would have been Jonathan or Samuel, uh, but apparently both Clark and Lois respected their second boss enough uh, to name their son after him. That's that's pretty powerful when you think about it. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you even get the mention that uh, Superman searched the galaxy for a cure for cancer mm-hmm. for Perry. Yeah. Because he... he was dying of cancer. I mean, the man smoked cigars constantly. So, but none of them worked on humans, which is why Lois is just given up. She said, no, there's no, Superman can't find a cure. I'm not even going to bother. And the, uh, Lois get getting her diagnosis was pretty powerful as well. Yeah, this this whole year is just full of shots to the gut, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and everything gets cheerful in 1979. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a wedding, and why don't we get to 1979? And that's where we're going to be cutting it off this time. Come back in a few weeks, and we will have part two of my discussion with Michael Bailey on Superman, Batman, Generations. See you then. Thank you for listening to the Hammer Podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send an email to gene at thehammerstrikes.com. If you like what you've heard, please visit the Patreon page which is located at patreon.com slash thehammerstrikes, and consider becoming a sponsor of the show. Please be sure to check out The Hammer Strikes on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and YouTube. The Hammer Podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network.